Welcome to this episode of the Sports Medicine Science and Performance Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andy Franklin Miller. Hello, it's Andy Franklin Miller. Welcome back. It's almost two years since the last podcast, and uh, it's a time too long. I'm really excited to spend this evening with two colleagues who we've worked with for over five years and actually built a program of research around athletic groin pain with um, all three of us in the room at uh, Dr. Aina Falvey, who worked his way in sport through being a heavyweight boxer, through to looking after rugby from Munster to the Irish national side and currently to the British and Irish Lions. Uh, and Enda King, Head of Performance at SSC Sports Medicine, uh, Childhood Physiotherapist, uh, former Gaelic footballer, um, and just finished his PhD, not in groin pain, believe it or not, but in ACL rehabilitation. Gents, welcome. Thanks for spending this evening with me. Andy, absolute pleasure. Um, so, guys, I thought we might just start with a bit of a discussion. We call this problem athletic groin pain. Other people call it a whole multitude of things. What are we talking about? I suppose we're talking about a range of overuse injuries of the anterior pelvis and hip. Um, part of the challenge in the area is that Multiple structures often become symptomatic concurrently uh, and there can often be a lack of consensus around what to call those multiple structures at that given point in time. And often then what the best uh, management approach is, whether that's uh, either through an exercise-based program or, or through uh, some sort of injection or surgical intervention. And when you've uh, multiple structures, do we need multiple different approaches towards uh, solving this problem? Yeah, and that, that's exactly the point. Andy, you and I both know we spent a lot of time on the anatomy of the groin uh, in our time in Melbourne. And at the time, we were uh, very fixated upon um, arriving at the most affected structure and which structure was affected when. And as we've gone on this journey uh, with Enda over the last few years, we've really seen that the structure appears to be less important than we thought it was before. It's mainly, now we feel it's how the patient moves uh, and what that movement causes and the effects of those movement patterns are. Therefore, um, it really became obvious over time that for us a more uh, umbrella term was, was, uh, was a suitable approach to this rather than focusing, focusing on the anatomy of the problem. For sure. And, you know, look, we've got some some, some very esteemed colleagues. I mean, Andreas Cerner out of the Doha Group, um, his systematic review shows multiple terminology in here. And that probably leads to that confusion in the sense that if we're talking about pain in an area which has multiple structures, how can we possibly agree on one thing to call it? And I, and I guess um, leading on from that, we... We know that there was a Doha group and a Doha consensus in terms to try to get that terminology the same. And I guess one of the criticisms of the work that we put together, and we might touch on that in a second, um, is that that terminology, we didn't use it um, in the same way that those people got together. And I think you know some people find that very frustrating, um, but I guess from our point of view, despite the fact that we're less focused on the anatomy, it was really that we, we couldn't. And so, Aina, do you want to just talk us through that first paper, Athletic Groin Pain Part 1, uh, of those 382 patients? Yeah, so this was really the starter paper to, to, to get the series going, and where we, where, we, where we basically described our frankly massive cohort of patients where we, we had full clinical data, MRI findings, and outcome scores on a whole 382 patients. Uh, these would, be, would have been patients that we saw as part of our regular clinical um, approach at the clinic. Uh, they were patients 
uh, who some of whom rehabilitated with us, some did not. Uh, and one of the main reasons that we found it um, unhelpful for us to use the, the uh, DOA consensus terminology were some of our clinical findings, largely in that our main group here were, were the pubic aponeurosis group at 62% of our, of our patients presenting. Um, and you can see this against a relatively minor number of patients who presented with adductor pathology. Um, from, from that perspective, this may be a nomenclature issue, but we felt it quite important that the vast majority of our patients presenting with adductor pain also presented with lower abdominal pain, largely along the lateral border of the rectus abdominis muscle, usually between five to six centimeters from its insertion. And these patients get pain in their lower abdominal area when they perform an adductor squeeze. And from our perspective, describing these patients who have pain in their adductor area and who have pain in the rectus abdominis area, they are not adequately described in the DOA consensus. Uh, and we felt that the pubic aponeurosis, um, which <clears throat> attempts to describe the continuity and anatomy between the rectus abdominis muscle as it loops over the pubic synthesis and down onto the adductor uh, tendon uh, needed to be reflected uh, in our anatomical description. Sure, and other people, um, Prof Shilders of course, uh, would call that that structure was pyramidalist or the pyramidalist complex. Mm -hmm. um, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, they, they described that in a beautiful paper earlier on this year and very well structured paper and, and some quite interesting findings. But if you look at the, the, the actuality of the size of this structure, it is very, very small. And similarly, it's lying directly on top of the adductor muscle itself and realistically probably acts in a synergistic effect with the muscle, but isn't really bringing much new to the party in terms of what we're seeing clinically. So I think I'd certainly, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't disagree with the findings, but I'm not sure that it adds an awful lot on what we already saw. Sure. So, so is it though that our cohort, much of this cohort is predominantly from Ireland, um, well over half are playing Gaelic football. Um, and there is, is Gaelic football that much different from other sports, Australian rules football, from soccer, in terms of are we describing the same pathology here or do we have a unique cohort? I think anatomically, I mean, they're presenting with the same uh, group or groups of diagnosis. Um, from the previous literature, you see different <coughs> major groups, whether that's a, a, a hernia group or an inguinal group or an abdominal or a doctor group. But actually, really, it's many ways of just calling it the same thing. I suppose we're fortunate enough to see a wide variety of sports here. And despite the fact that the demands of Gaelic football or Australian rules or soccer um, or American football might be very different in terms of their sports specificity, a lot of these athletes are presenting with the same challenges and same deficits in intersegmental control uh, around the pelvis and hip and how they carry that into their linear running mechanics and change direction mechanics. So although there are differences within the sports, a lot of the core movement strategies that are getting them into trouble are consistent across all the sports. And we're talking about pain here after all. So, you know, pressing on a structure it's sore, we've yet to define any pathology. Um, one of the things, I guess, that we were quite proud of as a study is that we were able to conduct MRI imaging of the pelvis of all those, of all those patients. Um, Aina, do you think it was important? Yes, 
Um, I'm, I'm, I'm acutely aware of, of the excellent work from, from Copenhagen and Sonia Ranke in this area where um, we need to interpret an, uh, the MRI findings with care. Um, certainly, this, it's not a situation where we allow the MRI scan to dictate what the diagnosis or management should be, but in our practice, it's an integral part of what we do uh, in the sense that, first of all, it, it has the, the benefits of excluding pathologies which need to be excluded, such as sacroiliitis or um, infection, etc. Uh, but beyond that, uh, there's also the role of, you know, if you see a doctor origin pathology, matching this with your clinical findings of pain at the doctor origin means that this may or may not be clinically significant. Similarly, if, if you see, you know, um, uh, inferior capsule change, such as an inferior cleft, and the patient has no pain on that side, and then that's obviously related to an early episode of growing pain that they've had, and it's an interpretation issue. So I don't believe that this is a, a hard and fast rule, but we know from our findings that, that the clinical tests we saw were, uh, were, were, to be honest, they really lacked in specificity. So they were extremely sensitive, um, but their positive predictive value was very low. Uh, so we found that if you had pain in your groin, no matter really what was wrong with it, you probably had a positive squeeze test. But it didn't tell us what was sore. It certainly didn't tell us that the adductor was sore or any other structure. What we did find, however, is that when we matched and added uh, in a... Um, a sequential approach when we added uh, MRI findings we found that we could increase the positive predictive value from 0.8 uh, up into the low 0.9s, 9.3 I believe, um, by adding in palpation MRI and MRI findings together. So I think um, obviously uh, this there this is an area of much debate but it is one where, where we feel it adds quite a lot to our diagnostic process and management. So of this group of patients, so well over 300 patients, um, the most common diagnosis was what we term pubic acneurosis injury. The MRI often showed multiple pathologies. So there was some hip pathology, there was some bone edema, there was soft tissue change. Uh, and that combination of clinical findings allowed us to pinpoint really what we thought was the anatomical cause. I guess what we're known for here at the Sports Surgery Clinic is the use of 3D biomechanics. And over the last five years, we've explored it both in terms of our athletic groin pain population, our post-operative ACL population, and now our shoulder population. And Andy, your PhD is, is ACL-based um, predominantly, but it, it, 3D biomechanics is an integral part of it. Just maybe talk us through what 3D biomechanics entails. Yeah, I suppose 3D biomechanics um, allows for the accurate measurement of human movement. Um, we analyze human movement every day in clinical practice. We watch people squat, run, change direction. But from a scientific point of view and from an accuracy of feedback point of view, 3D biomechanical analysis allows us to use reflective markers and infrared cameras to find se uh, individual joints and individual seg segments of the body. And along with the ground reaction force and the force plates, look at load and how it's transferred across individual, individual joints and multiple joints concurrently. So really, what we're able to try and do here is to try to identify specifically reproducible patterns of movement. So that we take a look at these patients with groin pain and see what they do. And rather than actually eyeball it and look at it, we can give a quantifiable number. Exactly. And in the second study, what we wanted to look at was, given that change direction is probably one of the most commonly reported aggravating activities, how did this cohort of athletes that were assessed with uh, presenting with athletic groin pain, or with their change direction mechanics, and our working hypothesis would have been that 
well look the adductors will probably change direction the same way or the hip uh, impingements will change direction the same way and therefore there will be a, a relationship between the diagnosis and the movement and we'll be able to explore that and intervene with that more appropriately. Sure, so although we did multiple different um, biomechanics tests, this paper, um, part two, um, builds around that five meter uh, triangular space with a 110 degree planned cut on both the right and left legs. And so really what we're looking at there is how the body, the segments interact at that cutting maneuver. That's correct. Um, and so uh, what we found um, was that that group of, of patients who had multiple different pathologies um, could be divided up rather than anatomy into the movement or how they moved into three clusters. And those clusters were uneven. So 40% were cluster one, um, 19% or 20% were cluster two, uh, and the remainder in cluster three. And, and I guess one of the criticisms of this work is, so what? So that, you know, we identified that there were three distinct different patterns of movement in these patients who presented with um, groin pain. Um, and how, what can we draw from it? Yeah, I suppose the, the, the two main interesting points from this, number one is, I suppose, our working hypothesis would have been that uh, individual diagnosis would be retained within one cluster. And what we found was that there was no relationship between cluster membership and anatomical diagnosis. What that means for us clinically is that, you know, if you're an adductor entity, I have no idea how you change direction. So if I have no idea how you move and you're describing this as your most provoking activity, uh, do I give you a program specific to, or should it influence your mechanics specific to your diagnosis? or more partly depending on how you're moving diagnostically. Uh, the second one was that there were three distinct uh, patterns of movement. So again, it, was, it, it demonstrated number one, who tend to lose more on the transverse plane where they'd increased hip internal rotation and trunk rotation, uh, and cluster number two where they'd increased hip abduction and trunk side flexion. So again, do we need to start to modify and tailor our uh, rehabilitation programs even further, specific to individual movement strategies opposed to generic programs? And I think one of the big take-home messages for me from this, when actually we, we had spent an awful lot of time worrying about whether this was going to be adductor moment or abductor moment, uh, were two things. One, the role of the torso. It's 40% of body mass. It's so often ignored. And actually understanding that you have a large pendulum swinging around, it really starts to suggest how that hip flexor and how that lower abdominal set of muscles really has to work to try and oppose and control that movement. But I think the real thing here for me was the fact that the ankle became so prevalent in understanding those clusters. It's certainly not something that I would have thought of necessarily, and we know that a pre-existing rehabilitation program, which we've shown some great success, um, don't certainly don't focus on anything outside of the groin. Has that been a big shift? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, if you look at where we've come from on this, we've come from an on-bed um, review, doing a, a simple squeeze test with or without a handheld dynamometer, to looking at a compound movement, multi-segmental movement, and looking at how that affects the athlete's ability to perform their, their sport. Because at the end of the day, these are athletes. They're not patients. They're patients to us, but they, to, from their perspective, they're out there trying to do their job. And I think one of, the, one of Enda's great phrases is that the difference between performance and rehabilitation uh, is very small. So when you get a movement right to rehabilitate your injury, you're immediately moving into performance territory. And that's where this becomes scarily good because we're not just talking about rehabilitating an athlete, we're talking about improving the performance of that athlete as well due to their quality of their movement. Absolutely, and I guess, you know, look, the, the real challenge here is it produces a vast amount of data. You know, 250,000 data points per contact. Um, that's billions of data points over this, this patient um, data set. 
And I guess one of the most exciting things here is that we can start to use the machine learning algorithms now that we've tracked these patients pre and post rehabilitation to try to identify the actual measures or the individual features which actually might then group the patients more, more, more specifically. So rather than focusing on cost membership, we'll be trying to identify those individual features that we can become targets for rehabilitation and therefore alter the patient's approach. Very much so, and, and uh, the work that our colleagues Shane Gore and, and Chris Richter have been doing around changes in stiffness, except, I mean, we expected that you know hip abduction stiffness would change pre and post rehab, but actually, again, coming back to the ankle, there was very, very little changes in ankle stiffness with our intervention, and so, it, again, part of the enjoyable part of working here and the ongoing research is you know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know, and the biomechanics is shining a light constantly on you know, what we think we're changing, but also where the future uh, direction may lie. Yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's probably a good time to give a big shout out to our biomechanics team who've, who've grown from um, a, a one-man band almost five years ago to a 10-strong team now led by um, Catherine Daniels. Um, and uh, we're very fortunate to have an industrial intern um, placement scheme whereby for nine months to 12 months, um, students who are completing their, their postgraduate work in biomechanics come and spend some time uh, really adding value to what we do in terms of the interpretation. Um, and you know, having a 10-strong biomechanics team as part of a clinical working rehabilitation facility is, is of huge benefit that I think you know, we all, it's very easy to, uh, to underestimate. Um, so talking about these patients, we looked at the biomechanics of that movement, but these are real patients. I mean, they need to be rehabilitated. They came through the program, um, which you created, Ender. Um, it's a challenge, of course, though, because in order for this to be research, we need to do certain things at the start and finish. And we know we had some dropouts. The, you know, we started well over 300, uh, 205 entered this cohort in terms of the rehabilitation phase. Um, why? Why do we lose people? Um, I said, well, athletic groin pain is, is, is it's a shade of grey. So, I mean, if you pull your hamstring, there's a very clear episode and there's a very clear point. If you rupture your ACL, very often what you find in groin pain patients is that you know they're playing they have con- they've continued to play in spite of their symptoms or return to play in spite of ongoing symptoms depending on the time of year and um, obviously we have geographical challenges in terms of being able to offer the level of rehabilitation you'd like but i think the biggest difference often with with these chronic overuse injuries is the ability uh, in terms of return to play and outcome the ability to continue to play despite the ongoing presence of symptoms depending on the urgency of the time of season etc and i guess that's why the principal outcome measure here was chaos in terms of actually using a well-respected validated study um, to to look at that patient reported outcome measure in terms of uh, return to play absolutely and it's supposed to be as robust as possible we tried to combine that outcome of pain-free return to play, the validated patient report portion reported outcome measure in HAGOS and uh, the 3D biomechanics to try and paint as, as complete an overall picture of how the intervention influenced these cohort of athletes. Sure, and I guess it's probably worth making clear at this point that the 3D biomechanics as part of this cohort was really the exploratory nature of what we were looking at in the future rather than that specifically guiding the rehabilitation of this cohort, although the principles were based on intersegmental um, coordination and, and strength and power production. Um, we didn't use 3D biomechanics to guide the rehab in this data set. No, we had a, a quite well-defined rehabilitation program focusing on intersegmental control through compound movements such as squatting, lift, uh, deadlifting and uh, lunging uh, through to linear running mechanics and change direction mechanics with the, the program specific to what your movement competency was. So if we were all to 
to back squat today, the three of us, some of us would have uh, better quality uh, movement and some would have poorer quality movement. So the idea is to pitch the exercises specific to the individual's capabilities and progress them through that program, A, as their symptoms responded, but also B, as their physical competency improved. And we use SSC, um, a sort of six-level um, program of rehabilitation, but we describe it relatively well in the, in the program as these sort of three levels of, of rehab. Do you want to just talk us through the progression criteria um, from those levels? Absolutely. So, I mean, everyone began the, the program with uh, intersegmental control, either across uh, uh, two segments, such as the abdominal exercise stream for the trunk and pelvis control, or compound movements, such as the squat. Um, when they had a, a pain-free crossover test, which is resisted knee flexion in a Thomas test position, they were ready to start the linear running drills. And these involved marching, skipping, hip blocking and control drills, many of the, the common deaths we see in these uh, groin pain patients. When they're squeezed at 45 and become symptom free, again we use it not so much as a diagnostic test but as a pain provocation test to guide uh, the sensitivity of load across the pelvis and they had symmetrical hip internal rotation, they began their change of direction mechanics and when we'd optimised the mechanics and they tolerated uh, the predefined uh, running load programme, they were cleared to make a, a pain free return to play. And and it's a bit different from what, what's out there. And you know, we, we all work in a clinical environment. Um, you know, when the patient presents and you have that discussion in terms of this is a hernia groin pain and they're focused on this is a sportsman's hernia or this is an adductor pathology and they've been squeezing for the last um, three or four weeks, um, we know often the premise is they've done the perholmic program and it's failed. That's often very not true. It's very much they've, they've done part of that program rather than seen it all through. What's the message for the patient in terms of entering that rehab program? Yeah, and that can be quite tricky because the patient will often be laboring under an illusion that they have completed a program and haven't done it at all. They may have done one component of it poorly in, in many situations, but where they have completed that, I think for one of the one of the one of the best um, outcomes of our research is that you don't need to point the athlete towards where the issue is, you need to point them towards where their movement deficits and strength deficits are. And I think everybody in athletic population understands that, okay, here are your weaknesses, let's fix, that's level one, let's fix that. Here are your movement issues, let's fix those. And here's what you need to be able to do to perform at an elite level. Let's get that going. And that's a really simple message that every athlete understands. Again, blurring the lines between rehabilitation and performance and giving that upside to the whole process. And Enda, we're not trying, I think, again, a misconception that, that people have when, when we talk um, is that we're trying to change the way someone changes direction. Of course we're not. We're, what we're trying to do is to change the capacity um, to give them range in that movement. How do you get that across to the player? Yeah, I suppose when we're talking about your change direction running mechanics, the idea is not to make them look like Usain Bolt or like an American footballer. What you're really looking is what you're really seeing is a preferential loading of one or a number of structures at the front of the pelvis and even small changes in pelvic position, lateral hip strength and control or running or change direction mechanics can be enough to bring them from that symptomatic threshold to, to an, an asymptomatic uh, presentation. Because we wouldn't necessarily, the program worked very quickly and we, we had people um, sort of returning to running, returning to change of direction very quickly and we wouldn't necessarily expect them to make huge strength percentage differences in that window of time. And, and so I guess that's important to understand is that actually this is, these are small subtle changes. Um, the patient's sort of tipping over the edge and developing pain because of that. They're still a very well-trained athlete who is capable of significant torque production um, during that, and that's often one of the pro problems with groin pain in the sense the player has groin pain for many months 
and then hides it or masks it or can still play with it until it reaches that tipping point. Absolutely, and, and what you often find is, at least before they've come to us, have done a, a good block of strength work. So very often strength is not, is not the problem, it's the fact that how they express that strength through compound movements and then into linear multi-directional mechanics, that's where the flaw is. So they're strong enough, but it's the way they're producing for torque or how they're spreading that torque across the anterior hip and pelvis is often where their symptoms will develop from and, and cause trouble with. And, and that, that's a, it's an important point in that we, we speak regularly about a margin for error. Mm -hmm. So in, in their movement pattern, there are movements that they will get away with, but if you add, if there's a, you have a series of colliding variables, so for example, if you have some hip morphological changes which predispose you to a loss of internal rotation, then you couple that with a soft tissue loss mm -hmm. of internal rotation, you very quickly load the anterior groin and you get, you, you, you develop troublesome pain patterns and changing that athlete's capacity to move is the important thing. So as you say, you're not expecting to make major strength changes in that short period of time, but you're giving them a little more capacity, you're widening their room for error, and you're, you're widening their scope to get away with things that they were getting away with prior to becoming sore. And athletes that, that have long-standing symptoms, I mean, they'll often describe, you know, my pain started in my doctor and it spread to my low, spread to my low tummy and spread to my, my pubic bone. And, they, they, when you go through the explanation, they understand that this isn't three different problems and doesn't need three different solutions for it. It's very much in, in the program, we, we, we grouped all of these diagnoses together. We didn't separate them out. We, we rehabilitate them as a single cohort. And they understand that actually the way they're moving is overloading that area and any one or number of structures can become symptomatic as a result. And I guess that's where by that database now of 3,000 or so patients with athletic groin pain can allow you to tap into that in terms of, because we appreciate there's no normal here, we're not talking about normals, we, we, we hope to explore that variability element of it, but um, how where you might find an easy win, so where that leak or that load um, loss of control, you can compare yourself to that database and therefore identify where you might do a selected little bit of work either here or elsewhere. And, it, and it's interesting that the more patients we see, you'd expect to see more common patterns between them, but actually the more we see, the, we, the, more, the more patients we see and athletes we see, the more individualized our interventions are becoming all the time. So you'd expect you have a cohort of, of, of two or 3,000 athletes that there would be these constant streams running through them, but actually the more and more athletes we see with a given diagnosis of pubic bone edema or adductor, the less likely we know how they're moving and the more individualized we need to create their uh, the rehabilitation program to have the most effective and efficient outcome. And, and that's, that's an extraordinarily important point. It, it does raise the questions around the whole standardization of rehabilitation to, to be used to use in, in research, for research purposes. Mm. We saw in the recent fashion study where, where hip arthroscopy intervention for, for growing pain and hip pain was compared to, um, to a really well-constructed rehabilitation program, but because of the constraints of reproducibility and um, the methodological concerns around study design, it became an extremely generic protocol um, which basically stops the clinician from tailoring it to the patient's individual needs, losing an awful lot of the nuance and clinical skill that, ha that occurs in, in a treatment setting, uh, and which is really the, the apotheosis to what we're dealing with here, we're in, in that we're trying to tailor it for the patient, um, and the more that we tailor it for their deficits and use that to change their deficits, the, you know, the, the better the outcome. This is the, the benefit of the of the one-on-one um, -on -one rehabilitation done by yourself, and as opposed to what we what we present, which is uh, you know a patient contact every two weeks, which is an extremely low patient contact for this type of research. 
and, and unfortunately that gets lost in in in, in good methodology but the, the the you know the the perfect study sometimes does not reflect the reality of the situation but i think and that is what you know the the thing here is that we talk in those studies of conservative management this is not conservative management it's active strength it's active segmental control difference um, and actually you could argue that it's exactly the same as surgery it's just there's no knife and so I think that the the challenge here is whether we can report individual outcomes well whether we can individualize that program well and therefore treat individual players as almost profiles moving through so we can start to build that portfolio of, of strength parameters in terms of um, concentric, eccentric, reactive power and cutting performance, which allow us to build that sort of profile of the athlete, which might allow us to to reproduce that in a, in a research setting. And that's ultimately been one of the you know the, the real strengths of having the biomechanics involved in that. It doesn't really matter what you do; it only matters what you change. And so you'll you'll often hear you know someone failed rehab. Well, did they fail rehab or did rehab fail them? It doesn't matter if you're doing a program for a week or six weeks. It only matters what you change between those two given point time points. And so. For us, as part of our journey along here and how we modify our program over time, it's been incredibly effective, not just in ACL but in groin and shoulder as well, or in groin but ACL and shoulder as well. How we do what we think affects change, but actually how we need to modify that to get ongoing change. And that if an athlete is is moving or looks no difference after eight weeks of rehab, is that because they failed rehab or because the rehab program didn't affect the change needed? to afford them that room for error to become asymptomatic and return to play. Um, so for the benefit of the, the, the listener who hasn't um, yet read the papers, and I should add that they're all open access on the British Journal of Sports Medicine, the links will be in the uh, in the podcast notes. Um, we took this cohort away with 300 athletes. Um, they went through um, MRI imaging and clinical examination. Um, they, we used HAGOS as the principal outcome measure across rehabilitation, and they all underwent 3D biomechanical testing and a 110 degree cut so we could learn something about the process. Do you want to just talk us through the results of the rehabilitation? Because I think they're quite important. And if you haven't read the paper, we can probably summarise them in a, in a, a paragraph or so. Absolutely. So um, the intervention was uh, one appointment every two weeks uh, to go through the various levels of the rehab programme. Um, the changes pre to post saw medium and large effect size changes in HAGOS across uh, the time from initial assessment through to pain-free return to play. Uh, 80% of the athletes had made a symptom-free, uh, pain-free return to the previous level of participation. About 10% had dropped out due to a desire to return to sport anyway, and about 10% lost a follow-up. Um, but we also saw a number of biomechanical changes grossly associated with keeping the centre of mass within the base support. So reduced trunk side flexion, reduced hip abduction, uh, shorter ground contact, so from a performance point of view, shorter ground contact times, less hip and knee flexion, and less ipsilateral trunk rotation. So again, drifting again from those more uh, extreme movements we saw in cluster one and cluster two to more, a more neutral position and the ability to keep the centre of mass within the base support, as you talked about, Andy, control how that torso loads uh, the, the hip and pelvis. And the ankle work went up, didn't it? I mean, that's the, the thing here is like, you know, um, too often we talk about, you know, a joint doing less work or more work or, or a muscle, you know, the capacity, but actually we're able to quantify it. So using the force plate in that cut, we're able to see where that work goes because clearly the laws of physics are the laws of physics. You can't just dissipate that load. So the ankle work went up, um, the knee work went down a little, uh, the hip work went down a little. And so I think it's important we're distributing load differently in these patients as part of that rehabilitation process. Yeah, as we, we have often we're given this talk, we have this quote from James Jewell that energy cannot be created or destroyed, it can only be transferred from one form to another. So when you're sprinting and changing direction, 
uh, after rehabilitation, that extra load is going to go somewhere else. And again, we find that the ankle in particular uh, begins to adopt some of the extra stress to take it off the pelvis. And so um, in terms of time to return to play, we know this was a contentious question you raised earlier, you know, in terms of when players feel they can go back, they go back. In this study, um, what did we show? Uh, we found that athletes were able to make a pain-free return to play, with pain-free being a pain-free squeeze at all three levels and have tolerated uh, uh, running demands and change direction demands similar, similar to the sport they returned to uh, in uh, approximately nine weeks, uh, which would be, again, with one point with every two weeks, would be quite an effective return to play time in a non-elite population. Uh, and again, we would expect those times to be quicker or recover even better if there were more intensive rehab. And I guess you know it's worth reiterating that this is all causal. So we threw everything into the pot in terms of lower abdominal adductor hip related, um, and um, and I guess one of the things that we didn't see an awful lot of is uh, is that sportsman's hernia or posterior wall weakness. Uh, do you want to comment on that? Uh, yeah, I, I think if you um, particularly around the inguinal inguinal canal area, it's 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 extraordinarily open to interpretation so uh, you know uh, if if i palpate the lateral border of somebody's rectus abdominis muscle being uncomfortable and somebody else palpates that and feels it's the medial ball of the superficial inguinal ring well then we're both correct and there's an interpretation uh, approach to that from from our perspective um all these patients would have had a direct investigation of their superficial inguinal ring where under digital palpation it was felt and the posterior wall was also palpated. Um, most of these patients had pain in this area but it wasn't uh, in the absence of a direct hernia. We didn't treat it as a, a surgical um, uh, uh, indication. Uh, in fact, we re rehabilitated the patient as we would normally and, and we didn't have the necessity to revert to the surgery over the course of the of the of the uh, of our of our study, and uh, nor do we regularly do in our in our in our uh, clinical practice. No, sure, and I mean, I think we have to remember what the posterior wall is in terms of that sort of lower oblique aponeurosis. And if we're talking about a scenario where the anterior pelvic load increases, and that the lower abdominal muscle plus or minus parameters, if it's there, along with the adductor longus, take that load. And then when that fatigues, it goes to the hip flexor or even vice versa. It's not beyond the realm's possibility that that oblique muscle is doing exactly the same work and it really goes down the path of the weakest link. So whatever can hang on the longest, hangs on the longest till it gives up the ghost. And that we didn't talk earlier about the sort of role of bone edema um, in the anterior pubic ramus on MRI findings, probably because it becomes less relevant to us in that scenario, in that you know, it's purely just a, a low sign. We know that, you know, there's some good work being demonstrated that pubic bone edema is there in the normal asymptomatic athlete. But is that the asymptomatic athlete waiting to present with athletic groin pain? Or, or is that a truly asymptomatic athlete with no risk? And we won't know that unless we do that longitudinal prospective work to look at those risk factors. But I guess I think, you know, the take home for me from this has been, um, although we were focused on anatomy, indeed we wrote a bloody anatomy book on it, um, you know, it, the, our, our clinical direction here is that the anatomy is much less important. Yes, indeed. Uh, I think that's been the sea change in our approach to the management of this. Bear in mind, you, you, know, you, need, you, you, uh, you need to know the basics, you need to know your anatomy, you need to be able to deal with the anatomy, you need to be able to know what this is not, uh, which is very important. But um, if you, I feel if you focus too much on the anatomy, you lose sight of your ability to see the, the wider picture, which is the performance here, which is the movement pattern, which is what we've got to get after. And I think 
your point there uh, a moment ago on, on the bone marrow edema. You know, if you look back on this, we even have the scenario of people treating bone marrow edema as a cause for the pain, which if you look at this from a biomechanical model is almost laughable because if you're looking at the bone marrow edema as a marker of load, which it almost certainly is, um, then it makes perfect sense. Uh, it makes perfect sense that an asymptomatic athlete will occasionally have bone marrow edema and it will make sense that some people with high signal aren't as symptomatic as people with low signal because there are other factors involved. It simply indicates load. Absolutely, and I, I'm presuming, and I, I, mean, I, I think we probably never actually ask each other this, but by removing the focus on anatomy for us, essentially opens the deck in terms of what you're able to offer in terms of that individualized rehab, because then you're using the potential deficits that you might be guided by um, the cutting performance, but also by the strength deficits. Absolutely, and, and I mean, as we mentioned there, I mean, load is the key, is one of the key factors here. So, I mean, it's the external training load that doesn't cause the problem, but maybe exposes the deficits that drifts them from a, a sim an asymptomatic into a symptomatic approach. So, again, being able to individualize the program specific to their own movement deficiencies, but also target that load redevelopment in terms of building athletes back up again. So, if you have a, if you have a rugby player and he might cover six, maybe eight kilometers in a game, and you've an Australian rules player who's covering 14 to, to maybe 18 kilometers in a game, you know, the amount of load they both need to tolerate is very different. So you might be starting off your rehab program at the same point. They might have similar or individualistic characteristics biomechanically that you want to try and focus, but then how you transition that load management back in return to play. And return to play means very different things for both those groups of athletes. So again, that load management point of view in those early stages of return it needs to be very specific to the athlete you have in front of you. Absolutely. And, and look, I guess, it, it, as with any bit of research, it raises more questions for us than, um, than necessarily it answers. It's given, given us a clinical direction on where we, we might go. Um, one of the great things about um, our practice is the ability to uh, employ PhD students or, or, or have clinical and um, research PhD students ongoing at the same time. And we're very lucky to have Sam Bider uh, currently essentially repeating the study, uh, looking specifically at strength measures um, to see whether we can fine-tune it to try to improve that reactive strength, that stiffness element um, that Shane Gore, one of the groin team, has uh, researched, uh, looked at. And, um, and it's not the time and place to really uh, talk about the very exciting future that uh, is coming, and we'll leave that for another time. Um, but I think it's been a, 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 a change in practice for us and it's really very nice, I think, to be part of something where the research that we're doing alters our approach. Absolutely, it's been you know we we are all we all run the risk of working in a silo in our practice. You know, you you learn what you learn, you know what you know, and you, you don't gain you don't gain from that. It's not unless that you're being regularly challenged. If you're not asking the questions and having those questions asked of you. Um, you know, being conversant with the literature is a means of being able to is being able to give your patient the best evidence based care. But beyond that, driving the literature in an area means that your patient's getting cutting edge care. Uh, they're getting the best possible outcome for their for their for their time. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose combining the sports medicine diagnostics with their radiology, but also our biomechanics and strength and conditioning team, you, you really get pulled out of your 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 profession-specific paradigm, and I think that's where our groin research in particular has benefited from moving away from you know, a particular individual approach to how we're going to solve this problem with a more holistic view. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Andy Franklin Miller's podcast.